You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 15. Letter to Gene Roddenberry from David Houston, February 19th, 1975. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. All right, Star Trek fans. Oh, you Star Trek historians are going to love our show today. I mean, it's for everybody. It's for all of our canonistas. I say that lovingly. Hey, you tech heads are going to get a kick out of this, too. But seriously, across the spectrum of all you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, you're going to love our show today. Uh, we have a piece of living, we have a, an example, a sample of living history today, and it's much, it's much fun to talk with our guest. But you know what you have to do first? You have to look at our document of the week right there at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Our document is there. Now, here's a sample of that. But after you hear it, come back and join me for this week's very special guest. Dear Mr. Roddenberry, Susan's article on you and Star Trek for TV show people was just what I had hoped for. It will appear with the photos I took of you in the June issue, which will be on sale during May. I appreciate your cooperation in the matter. Now I've been asked to edit a special one-shot magazine on Star Trek, not related to TV show people. Although the publishers have assured me there are no legal questions involved, I want you to know the project is underway and that we will treat Star Trek respectfully. Yes, Trekophiles, treat it with respect. If you go back as far as I do, that uh, letter from David Houston, who was actually working on behalf of Norm Jacobs and our guest today, was the beginnings of what became a very special issue to me when I was a kid, a Star Trek special issue. And the world knows it as Starlog Magazine issue number one, which was co-conceived and co-founded by our guest today. I can't believe we've got him on the Trekphiles, but I'm so glad to have him here with us. Carrie O'Quinn. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Larry. Wow. I mean, I, we, have, we have these short episodes of the Trek Files, but there is so much to, to Starlog's um, history, what it did for Star Trek and for science fiction fandom and, and for the mundane world to know about science fiction. But the roots, I found this letter in the files and the roots, and it's David writing on behalf of the magazine idea, but you and Norm came up with this. But tell us a little bit about, you guys had been in publishing, but you were an old fan geek. You found each other, the two of you. This is, if people go back to that magazine, it was a classic. It was a landmark. It shook up magazine publishing as well as the sci-fi world, right? But you you and Norman were doing soap operas. Tell us about how that, what that was and how we transitioned into sci-fi. Well, Norman and I got together and decided that we knew We had both been art directors at uh, another publishing company for uh, other magazines, and that's where we met, was in the art pool uh, and for ideal publishing. And a few years later, when we had both gone in different directions, we got together and said, we know enough about publishing. Let's, uh, Let's become publishers. Let's make some money. And so we decided that the magazine we would start with was a soap opera magazine because this was in 1972. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there were 16 daily soap operas 
every day, Monday through Friday, 16 shows were on the air, and they had millions of viewers, and there was no magazine or anything that took that audience seriously and treated it with respect. So we started Mm. a magazine called Daily TV Serials, and we interviewed not only the actors on the soap operas, most of which were produced in New York City, so that's really nice. There were only three uh, soap operas that were actually produced out in L.A., far away, (laughs) and uh, so we began to interview the actors. We interviewed some of the writers, directors, producers, and we... Carrie, I'm I'm seeing a sense here that you're pioneering a certain kind of, of, of community with an audience no one was paying attention to, but that was begging for all this on upfront and behind the scenes information. Well, we knew that there were millions of people right. who watched the soap operas every day and they watched without fail. They were involved in these people's lives and their stories. Uh, they were they were totally involved five days a week. And yet no one took this audience seriously. There were no daytime Emmy right. awards. Daytime television was considered junk. Right. And we're going to we're going to erase over the videotapes of all the uh, soap operas and all the game shows, right? The, what's that? I mean, they were so dispensable, disposable that there are so many hours of videotapes of soap operas and game shows and talk shows that people they taped over them. We have like no record of 90% of the 60s and 70s. Well, uh, most most but of the American of public yeah. were at work during the daytime. And the only people at home available to watch the soaps mm-hmm. were either very elderly people who had retired or people who were sick and infirm right. or in right. some way they were not part of the general workforce. Right. And people didn't take that audience yeah. seriously, even though companies like Procter & Gamble lived off of the soap operas and what they did for their products. But you seized all those elements. You connected all those dots, and and your soap opera magazine became a huge hit. You guys guys really took off. Absolutely. It it gathered an audience. Uh, They began to, uh, I mean, our sales went up, and we started making money on that magazine. And our national distributor was delighted, of course. And uh, I was very impressed with the work that was done in the soap opera field because I was a working person. I didn't have time to watch the soaps, so I didn't really know much about them until we started working on the magazine and I was involved in some of the interviews and went to the sets and met some of the people involved. And I said, holy cow, there's a lot of really good talent involved in this field. But to go now from a great idea and you may be able to see that world, even though not being a fan of the subject matter, how do we pivot around to sci-fi and Star Trek and Starlog? Well, we were a young publishing company. We had one magazine. And the way we survived in those early years when we were, you know, basically living on a few dollars a week was that we packaged magazines for other publishers. And we did that. We, we would you know, basically put together a magazine because we had a staff that could do that because we were only publishing one monthly magazine Mm -hmm. and we would put together magazines for other publishers. And one of the publishers came to us and said, we would like to do a magazine about Star Trek. 
Now, Star Trek was off the air. The mm-hmm. the original three We're years. We're talking like 1975-ish, about the time of David's letter here, a little before, um, 74 maybe? Yes, I would say yeah. it was around 1975. Yeah. And uh, so... We basically, I had I had friends that were real Star Trek addicts, and so they had a lot of materials, and uh, we put it all together, and we did a whole magazine mm-hmm. devoted to Star Trek, and and it included an episode guide to all of yes. the seventy nine original television episodes. In better detail, can I just say this? I remember that magazine. It was the summer of 76. We were on summer vacation in Colorado. I found that magazine at the gift shop of the resort we were at. And I was, because you had episode guides, which we'd had before, but in detail, they had all been split up. The making of Star Trek didn't even have the third season. David Gerald's books tried to do that. But you, you went at it as a journalist, as a researcher, as an interviewer. And there was so much behind the scenes in that. So I, I imagine, did it did it take off? Did it sell? Well, Larry, the magazine that you saw was not the one that we packaged for the oh. other publisher. Okay. We packaged it. We gave it to him. And after about a month, he got back to us and said, we have discovered that Paramount owns the rights to Star Trek, mm-hmm. and we cannot publish this magazine because we don't have those rights. So they gave us back that whole magazine, all the materials on Star Trek, and said, we can't pay you for it, and we can't use this. And I said, holy cow, instead of doing a magazine about Star Trek, let's do a magazine about science fiction. Because Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in the soap operas until we started our magazine, but I was always interested (laughs) in science fiction. I mean, I had grown up in the 50s watching the George Powell movies, the Conquest of Space, War of the Worlds, uh, When Worlds Collide, all of those great movies that influenced me and made me a huge fan of tomorrow, yeah. science fiction, the future, and so forth. So I said, let's do a magazine about science fiction. But we had all this material, so the first issue was primarily that material about mm-hmm. Star Trek. The cover of the magazine was Star Trek, and almost everything in it was Star Trek. But to make sure that we didn't do a magazine just about Star Trek, we also included articles about other aspects of science fiction, and that was Starlog number one. And I came up with the title, Starlog, mm-hmm. which I thought was, you know, a great magazine title. Oh, it is. And that was the beginning of it. But our distributor was very fearful because there was no science fiction being done at that time. There was no movies being made. There was no television. Science fiction was not alive. We, we are talking like a year or two years before Star Wars. Had yes. the Star Wars and the sci-fi boom. So, yeah. So there's been the Star Trek boom, but a lot of people still aren't, they still don't get it yet. There's, the Star Trek has had a huge comeback, and it's, it's pioneering, and some people get it, and a lot of, well, you said your distributor didn't get it at first. You wanted to do a monthly at first, right? Well, of course. I mean, that's the way magazines <laughs> live. They're monthly. Right. But our distributor said there is absolutely no audience for that. There's no science fiction audience out there. You guys are going to lose your shirts. And you've just got a company going, and you're just beginning to make money on this one magazine. And I had to gather all of this material about the little Star Trek fan clubs, which included, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there was quite a few of them, 
But in those days, there was no social media or right. uh, phones that we communicated I call it the with. paper and stamp days. Yeah, no internet, no social media. Exactly. Right, right. So the way the fan clubs kept in touch with each other is they would, they would type out these fan letters, mimeograph them, and actually mail them to each other. And that's the way fan clubs kept in touch. Well, I collected all this material and did a presentation to our distributor, and I said, there is indeed an audience out there for science fiction, but they're invisible. And I said, we can reach that audience with this magazine. I know it. And the distributor said, all right, we'll let you start publishing this magazine, but you can't publish it monthly. You can publish it quarterly mm -hmm. because you have to know what the sales were in your first issue, which are I know they're going to be very disappointing, but you have to know what the sales were before you put in your print order for the second issue. So we started Starlog mm -hmm. as a quarterly magazine four times a year and that's the way we published for the first year until the next year that was in 1976 when we launched Starlog mm -hmm. the next year in 1977 this guy up in northern california named george <laughs> lucas came out with a movie called star wars and the X-Wing fighter from that movie made the cover of Time magazine. We had that same photograph on the cover of Starlog magazine, number seven, the seventh mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, our sales doubled, and our distributor let us go from quarterly to monthly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So he, because it, it's amazing. I had not thought of it in these terms when you talked about what you did with the soap opera audience. You collected the numbers. You basically showed that there was an audience there, even more so with science fiction. And, and, and science fiction in the 70s being even less respectable, if that's possible, than soap operas were. I, you know, underserved, under, underappreciated audiences. Absolutely. People, people did not take the audience seriously in either case. Well, I had worked for Gray Advertising a few years earlier as a TV producer. And one of my clients was Procter & Gamble. And I knew that Procter & Gamble basically thrived off of the advertising they did on soap operas. Oh, sure. That's why they called them soap, soap operas. Op right. Because the products that they sold, that they advertised, mm -hmm. were home products to housewives. Because those are the people who watched the soap operas. And when we started, as I said, there were no daytime Emmy Awards. And one of the things that we achieved with daily TV serials was to make the Television Academy take daytime television seriously. And for the very first time, the Academy decided to have daytime Emmy Awards. And they staged the first daytime Emmy Awards presentation outdoors in front of Rockefeller Center in New York and our magazine was the only magazine invited to cover the whole thing. Mm -hmm. We had photographers and reporters there, and we devoted a whole issue of the magazine to the very first Daytime Emmy Awards. And basically... Which you would help bring about. Of course. Yeah. And because we had taken the audience for that field seriously and given the product that we knew they wanted. And that, what I learned from that helped me with 
the science fiction audience, yeah. the yeah. fan audience, which no one took seriously either. And I was just sitting here thinking, your story about wanting to do an all-Star Trek magazine, your story about wanting to do an all-Star Trek magazine, but having licensing issues in the way is amazing because then you come full circle, and when Starlog and your whole family of magazines is a powerhouse, then you jump in and say, okay, we're going to license a special Next Generation magazine and a special DS9 by that time, years later. You know, it's like you've come full circle. Okay, now we will do specially licensed because we have the audience and we have the, we have the bucks to do it. And, and uh, you had a good run of all three of those, of the Next Gen and, and DS9, and they wound up doing Voyager licensed magazines. Well, science, we talk so much about soap operas, but the impact of Starlog, because the print edition, and you were there not the whole run, you had many, many years. Your, your opening columns, in fact, we should have you back and talk about the opening columns sometime. But I just want to say, Starlog itself ran in print till 2009, I believe. How many years were you there editing and writing your, your opening column and, and supervising things? Well, I, I was there Publishing. for over 20 years. Yeah. And uh, I did not, David Houston was the editor of Starlog for the first year. He right. was a very good friend of mine. We had got to know each other in high school in Austin, Texas. And we met at lunch one day in the lunchroom. He was from Abilene. <laughs> I was from Austin. We met, and we just clicked. And before the end of lunch that day, the two of us had decided that we were going to make a movie. And lo and behold, we made an 8-millimeter movie. And we were very fascinated in those days. It was the mid-50s. And we were fascinated with all of the motion picture technology that was trying to compete with television. That was Cinerama, mm -hmm. 3D, VistaVision, right. all of that kind of stuff. So we decided that we were going to do an 8 millimeter movie and we were going to make it widescreen. Well, <laughs> we didn't have an anamorphic lens or anything special. I mean, 8 millimeter right. is a tiny film, you know. Yeah. So Home movie we, cameras are 8 millimeter, yeah. But what we yeah. did was, in projection, we cut off the top and the bottom of our picture, and we made a widescreen, and we called our technique Cosmorama. <laughs> and that, that's an actual word in the dictionary. It means a, a view of the cosmos uh, realistically reproduced. You, you know, this publishing thing, but you've got a, you've got a real flair for branding, too, I have to say, Kara. Uh, yeah, Cosmovision. Listen, I, there's so much more I want to get into with you and Star Trek uh, and your relationship with Gene and Star Trek people. Oh, um, yeah. And even how the we, we talk about crossing the streams, even how crossing the streams um, reflected back on Star Trek. Can you come back and join us for another time? Absolutely. Oh, I would love that, Carrie. Thank you so much. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment now are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Uh, that's me at larrynemachek.com. That's where you can also find the links to all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.